0: Take your Bibles, please, and turn together to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's Gospel in chapter 7. I'm going to read a few verses from this as we begin this morning, just to kind of set the stage and continue on in our understanding of what it means to be a genuine Christian, because that's really what we're talking about. We're studying, of course, in the whole matter of the fundamentals of forgiveness. And one who is forgiven by Christ, by God, is a Christian. A born-again believer is one who has been redeemed, forgiven, set free from their sin. And what we're saying in these recent messages is that when that happens to a man to a woman, or even to a boy or a girl, it will be evident. The evidence of forgiveness. So follow with me, beginning in verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. What our Lord here is telling us is that when a man or a woman displays the mannerisms and the lifestyles of the wicked, following after what He called false prophets who come as ravenous wolves, sometimes even into the congregations. Paul warned of that in the book of Acts, that wolves will come in among the people and lead them astray by false teaching. And Jesus is saying is when you follow after that, the false teachings, it will be evident that you are followers of false prophets. You will know them by their fruit. So, when we think of and talk of such things that take place in congregations where there is irreverence, where there is false teaching, a centering on a false Gospel, such as the health and wealth gospel of the day, the traditionalism of the Church of Rome and many others like it, the Arminianism and the dispensationalism found even in many so-called evangelical churches, the bands, the dancing, the throwing aside of God's Word for the shallow teaching and the simplicity of shall I say, entertainment, when the Word of God is lessened and put aside for entertainment and gimmicks and games, you can tell. I hope that every one of you by now, when you go to some of these churches, can spot the truth or the lack thereof in what's going on. That you will see the shallowness and the irreverence of what is going on in some of these places. You can tell by what they do. You can see their fruit. Likewise, on the other hand, Jesus speaks of good fruit coming from a good tree. When a tree is bad, the fruit's going to be bad. But when the tree is good, the fruit's going to be good. In other words, when a man or a woman or a boy or a girl lives the lifestyle and the mannerisms that is consistent with a godly boy, a godly girl, a godly man, a godly woman, you will know. You hear me, kids? Your mom and your dad can tell when you are living a godly life. It is not that hard. You will know them by their fruits. That's what Jesus is saying. You will know when somebody is saved. You will know when somebody is lost. It will be evident by their fruit. And people go, oh, oh, you can't judge. Yes, you can. It's not judging. It's evidence of salvation. And what we are saying in our study is that everyone who has genuinely been forgiven will bear evidence to that fact in their life. And one of the main things that we can see in a church is that they will bear evidence of that as well. In what they do in the church, in what the people do in the church, what is done in the church, And how God is worshipped in the church will bear evidence of being a good tree or a bad tree. With that I ask you to please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Having seen the essence of forgiveness, that is that we all need to be forgiven. And then the existence of forgiveness that God offers it and Christ died to secure it, we are now considering the reality or the evidence of forgiveness. A few weeks ago, we dealt with the first one being that there will be love to God. When you are saved and forgiven, you will love God for what he has done. You will love Jesus. Last week, we saw that there will be thanks to God for Him saving you and forgiving you. There will be genuine thanks. We saw first in the Old Testament that the godly Israelite, when he considered all of God's mighty works and all of God's mighty deeds, gave thanks. And then we saw in the New Testament that it is what the redeemed believer does. He gives thanks to God for what God has done for him through Christ. Today we turn our attention to the Scriptures again to see the next area that forgiven men and forgiven women will give evidence by their praise and worship to God. And by that I not only mean how it is done, although we may get to some of that even today, but more than that, It is the attitude of the heart in doing so that we will be looking at from the Scriptures this morning. And first here in chapter 2, or Psalm 2 I should say, we see first of all the way of the world versus the way of God. The way of the world versus the way of God. Follow with me as we read here. The first couple of verses. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take their counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us tear their feathers apart and cast away their cords from us. You hear what he's saying? You have today, even in our land, people who hate God, people who hate His ways, people who hate His word, and according to this, even His anointed, which would be His son. So the world, when we speak of the world, that is those who are lost and those who love the world, the world hates God. The world hates his word, the world hates his son, and Jesus said, the world hates you. Because you love his word, and because you love his son, they're going to hate you. But they hate God. They do not want the things of God, and that's why they say, let us cast their fetters apart. Cast their cords from us. In other words, they don't want any restraints from God. They don't want any restrictions from the Bible on their lifestyle. They don't want these Ten Commandments interfering with their lust or their stealing or anything like that. They don't want the Word of God to interfere with their aborting children. Let's just keep doing sin, and we don't want this God stuff to get in our way. We hate God. We hate His Word. We hate His Son. We don't want Him. That's what they're saying. The world hates God. Now, what does God say? Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens, who's that? God. This is Jehovah God. He who sits in the heavens laughs. I do love that verse. What on earth are these people with all of their devised plans to get rid of God going to do to Jehovah God who sits enthroned in the heavens? Nothing. What can they do? As Nebuchadnezzar said in Daniel, what can they do? How can they stay his hand or say to him, what are you doing? They can't. There's nothing they can do. So God sits in the heavens, looks at the plans of men, and laughs. Think about it throughout the centuries. All throughout the beginning of uh, God giving his word to the nation of Israel. All of the things, all of the nations that tried to destroy them and kill them. What did they do? Absolutely nothing. God cared for them, provided for them, protected them and brought them through. Their destruction came from God himself, who finally had enough of their rebelliousness. And as Jesus said, took the kingdom from them and gave it to those who will bear fruit. But as God cared for them and provided for them in the Old Testament, nobody could stop them. Great armies would come against them and God would beat them with 300 guys. That's our God. He, he laughs at the plans of men who try to cast him off or say that he does not exist or to deny his word. And the same is true today. The Christian church has had many who would come against it and try to destroy it, but the gates of hell shall not prevail. The church continues on and the people of God continue to worship God. Even in our land, which it is getting more and more difficult, but there are many other lands where it's almost impossible, but men still worship God and His Son Jesus. Pray for them. They need it. So he sits in the heavens and laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fear. Saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Jesus is king. And no one can stop it, change it, or do away with it. So This is the world versus God. It's not going to win. But further, we have the world versus God. The way of God in us. Verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Here's what God's saying Take warning. The God who is God, the all powerful, almighty God, warns them Beware. Verse 11. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way for His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. I want to take a few moments to look at what he says. The world cannot prevail against God. And so what he says, and I'm going to look at the last thing he says, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. Who is that? Those who take refuge in him today are you. Christ is our strength. Christ is our refuge. Christ is our Redeemer. We take refuge in Christ against the world. When we are in Christ, we are not lovers of the world, we are lovers of God. We take refuge under the shelter of His wing. Now then, what will we do? Verse 11 Worship the Lord. Worship the Lord. And again, this is not a study on worship. But I cannot help but see what is said in the text. We are to be those who give praise and adoration and honor and glory to God. Worship is what we are to do. And we are to do so, as the text says, in reverence. Now that word reverence in the Hebrew is more considered fear. Worship God in fear. But it also has with it the connotation of awe. God is awesome. One of the hymns we sing from the Trinity Hymnal. How awful is the place with Christ within the doors. Awful means full of awe. And that's the sense here. We worship Him with a sense of awe. A sense of awe because He is God. He is genuinely, truly, completely Creator God. That's who we gather to worship. Worship is giving to Him the praise, the glory, the honor that belongs to Him. To learn of Him. To grow in His grace and in His Word. And that is to be done with reverence. With reverence. I will refrain from application at this point. If I can. We are to worship him. With. Reverence. Now it does go on to say. The psalmist does go on to say. With rejoicing. We are to have joy. In our worship. It is to be with awe. And it is to be. With joy. I don't want you to come here. And dread it. I want you to come here. And and look forward to it, anticipate coming to hear from the Word of God. We'll talk about that in a moment. But there should be joy. I attended a church for a number of years. There was a good church in many, many ways. But there was a a noticeable lack of rejoicing, a noticeable lack of joy. I don't want that. I want you to rejoice in the things of God. I want you to understand what God has done for you and to have that well up inside of you with great joy. For Christ has died for my sins and I shall be with him for all eternity. There's joy to be seen in a Christian's life. Yes, there's fear. Yes, there's reverence. But there's joy, rejoicing. But notice that even that is tempered with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. So don't just think that you're to go to church and dance around and rejoice and be happy. There is to be rejoicing, but it is tempered with trembling. So it's not jokes, it's not fun and games it's reverent joy in the worship of the living god we are to be those who show respect even as he says in verse 12 do homage to the son that's respect now that the term homage has the connotation of giving like a kiss of love and a kiss of respect so when we come to worship God we come with our hearts that are first of all full of awe for our God and we rejoice in all that God has done for us but even that has the sense of mixing with fear trembling for being in the presence of the living God you know when Saints in the Old Testament encountered the presence of the living God. What did they do? They did not dance around. (laughs) They fell on their faces. They were in fear for being in the presence of God. That's what we're talking about. As we saw in the book of Revelation, again I mention this, that Christ is in our midst. God is here. We come to meet with the living God. And so that has the sense of fear. We're meeting in the presence of God. So there's awe, there's fear. And in the midst of that rejoicing, and we pay homage to the son. And here's the urgency in what he's saying. Do homage to the son that he may not become angry and you perish In the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. You see the urgency there? You don't want to mess with God. Now for that application. How uncommon is this in churches today? Where is the awe for God and who he is? Where is the reverence? They are playing fast and loose with the true and the living God, thinking that by doing these dances, these waving of hands, these ridiculous programs, gimmicks, songs, and entertainment, they think by doing that they're worshiping God? Beware! His wrath may soon be kindled. And I believe we're seeing it. The evidence is in the nation in which we live, which has turned away from the wholesome living and godly living that it used to be characterized by and has become a cesspool for sin, murder, drugs, wickedness. And preachers in the pulpit are telling stories and jokes and little how-to homilies instead of warning men and women from the Word of God. Where is the awe of God or the awe for God in the church today? The urgency is that many of their members are going to hell and they don't know it. And the preachers don't care. If they did care, they'd warn them. If they did care, there would be more urgency warning them regarding the wrath of God. But the evidence that one loves God will be that he comes before God in proper Worship when you are one who has been blessed by him and has taken refuge in him. The evidence will be that your heart will come to God in worship in a proper way. And it's all you'll ever want. I cannot stand it. When I visit a church that does not worship God with reverence and awe. It's gotten to the point where I feel dirty. I need to go out and take a shower after going to some of these places. They sell their food. They are more interested in, in numbers than they are in truth. And the Entertainment is ridiculous and unnecessary. And most importantly, it's not what God wants. God wants respect. Do homage to the Son. Come to Him with awe. Yes, you will rejoice, but come to Him in awe and rejoice even in trembling. Now there are many, many examples in the Old Testament of praise, and worship to God, and they're easy to find in the Psalms. But I ask you to turn with me to another at this time. Please turn to Psalm 84. This is a particular relevance to our concern this morning. Psalm 84, as we find here, the attitude of a saved man regarding, and I'm going to say church. The attitude of a saved man Regarding church. Look at verse 1. How lovely are your dwelling places. O Lord of hosts. How lovely are your dwelling places. Now dwelling places is often translated tabernacle. How lovely is your tabernacle. O Lord of hosts. You'll notice the word Lord is L and small cap O-R-D. So that is Jehovah God, Yahweh, I am who I am. How lovely is your tabernacle, your dwelling place, O Jehovah of hosts. So let's consider, first of all, the dwelling place of the Lord. What was that? Well, for the Old Testament Israelite, They erected that tabernacle in the wilderness. And it was that place where God dwelled. But look at what he says in the text, in verse 1 in the second portion. He says, O Lord of hosts. Now, who are the hosts? Well, the hosts most likely speak of angelic beings. And so he's saying, oh God, you are the Lord, you are the ruler of all the angelic beings, all the angels indeed of heaven, the angelic hosts who would be there in heaven. Now some suggest that the writer speaks of them here as they would be attending the presence of God in his tabernacle. Now we don't see angels. We don't see God. I've done and perhaps may do it again in the future, a study on angels, the other created beings. And you see actually in the scriptures many things that you wouldn't expect to be true. For instance, there may be some validity in the teaching that you might have a guardian angel. It's not Clarence. That's next month coming up. But, but there is evidence in the scripture that that actually may be the case. And certainly the angelic hosts care for and watch over God's people in some way, in some fashion. There's there's no question about it. And we would tend to believe, and I do believe indeed, that even in in a broader sense of our church, when we meet with God, it's not that God would be here alone. It's not that It would only be God. There is evidence when you look at all of the scripture passages that deal with angels, that there may even indeed be angels who would guard our own church. And so some suggest that what is being said by the psalmist is that the angelic host would be there in the tabernacle as God himself is seen to dwell in that Holy of Holies, that Holy of Holy place where the altar, where the uh, Ark of the Covenant would have been placed, where the priest went in only once a year, that the angelic host would be there to take care of, to minister to the God that was worshipped in the tabernacle. Now that's one Suggestion made by some, but to be sure, the angelic host, whether they are in the tabernacle or are in heaven, God is the Lord. But it is as though the psalmist is here comparing the tabernacle, the place where the people would come to worship, as being a bit like Heaven with the angelic host present and God present. And I don't mind that a bit. I kind of feel that when the church is genuinely worshiping God with fear and trembling and awe and rejoicing, that that's a bit of heaven. Christ is said to be in our midst. We believe indeed that He is. And so it is a time of meeting with God. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Before I go any further, do you ever stop to think that? That when you're coming to church, you're coming to the dwelling place of God? that God dwells peculiarly in the midst of His church, in a special way in the midst of His church. And yet that is what we find in the Scriptures. So, church is a bit like heaven, meeting with God. And in the eyes of those who are redeemed, In the eyes of those who are sanctified, the dwelling place of God is, as he says, lovely. How lovely is the dwelling place of God. How contrary to so many. But to the redeemed, it is lovely. What does that mean? Lovely is a place of, That you love to go. Lovely is something you love. You like. You want it. How lovely is the dwelling place of the Lord. Now why would that be? Because in the right way. And this is why it is so important about what we said from Psalm 2 when it is done in the right way, when worship is considered to be the right way or done the right way, there will not be worldliness. You don't want the world in your church. You don't want the wickedness of the world, the entertainment of the world, the sin of the world. You want the God of the Bible. You want the true and the living God, not the world. You get enough of that six days a week. On the Lord's Day, come and meet with the Lord. Not worldliness. The Lord. And I have said this all throughout my life as a Christian, and particularly as a pastor, that whatever you include in your worship service is what people are going to come for. Whatever you do to get people in is what you're going to have to keep doing more and more of to keep them in. And if they're coming for entertainment, That's what they're going to come for: entertainment. And if they're coming for entertainment, you got to keep giving it to them. And you got to give them more and more and better and more dramatic. How can we outdo ourselves this week? We have worship committees set up to determine how the church can worship better and worship leaders and. All these other people, and what are they leading and what are they doing? They're planning out how they can do more and more entertainment and more and more stuff to entice people to come in and to keep the people who have come in so they'll keep putting their shekels in the offering. Well, what we suggest is that what we want to do is to present the God of the Bible, to preach the truth, to preach His Word, to offer to men and women doctrine, teaching, foundations from the Scripture that will stand you well with God and help you in your life as you live before God and before men as Christians. That's all we offer. I don't need a team to plan it. We seek to give men The reverence of God that he deserves. The rejoicing in God for what he has done as we find it in the scripture. And I hope that for you, that is a lovely place to go. Because that's what the psalmist says. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord. if we can only come to grips with the fact that we meet in the presence of the living God, what more would we need? But we continue on. He says then in verse 2, in the beginning, My soul longed, even yearned, for the courts of the Lord. That term longing that he uses there is a deep yearning. You really want to go there. You really want to be there. And this is accentuated by him even saying, yearned. My soul longed and even yearned. Now, the term yearned, translated in our Bibles, yearned, is actually in the Hebrew, it carries more of the, the meaning of completeness. In fact, it's only translated yearned one place in the Bible, right here. In all the rest, it's translated, or in most of the rest, it's translated a completeness, a fulfillment. So what he's saying is, I have this sense of complete yearning, this complete desire to be in the presence of the Lord, in the courts of Of the Lord, in the temple of the Lord, in the church of the Lord. So the psalmist gives the notion of a complete desire to go to church. You know, we see this in the scripture also. If you would turn back to Psalm 42. Psalm 42. We're going back to uh, Psalm 84, but right now just look at Psalm 42. These are very familiar passages, very familiar verses. Verse 1, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O Lord God, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Now I know in many translations, the first, The word deer is translated heart, and it could be translated heart, but the primary uh, meaning of the Hebrew word is deer. But you get the sense of what he's saying better if you look at it that way, as a deer pants for the water brooks. And the picture is that of a deer who is thirsty, and will run to and fro and go through the forest and do everything and anything that he needs to do to get to water, to get to a drink. And, and deer do that. They, they run, they travel, they go to find a stream, to find water. Even if it means going past danger, they have to get water. So they will do it. And that's the picture that he's giving. As a deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. Now This is certainly a text that I would love to preach on in its entirety and open it up, but I'm just giving you the sense of what one has for the things of God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. And when shall I come and appear before God. I can't wait to appear before God. Let's go back to Psalm 84. I can't wait to go to the courts of God. I can't wait to go to church. The picture is that of a heart and a soul longing and thirsting to be with God. And so here in verse 2, he says, My soul longs and even yearns for the courts of the Lord. Look at verse 2b. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. My heart longs to be with God, and it longs to sing for joy. To the living God. That's why I love to hear you sing. But the thought is that when he experiences being in the tabernacle, there will be his heart and his flesh singing for joy to the living God. I wait to sing for joy to the living God. My heart yearns to do that and what is that that's that's bringing praise that's worshiping God my heart longs to sing for joy to the living God that's that's what we strive to do we sing hymns and from those hymns we offer to God sound hopefully sound theology expressing our hearts to Him with praise and joy. That's what worship is supposed to be, at least part of it. Giving to God the praise of our hearts as we sing to Him joyfully, not as we mumble to Him. We strive to have worship where we sing praises to the living God. And one of the men even prayed in the back before we came out that we would sing joyfully to God. Right, right from this psalm, that we would sing joyfully, that our singing would bring praise and glory to God. So it is with joy, not sullen, not mumbling, but joyful praise. Next look at verse 4. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Now, of course, he's speaking of those who would serve in the tabernacle, the priests and the Levites. But the application to those who would go there to worship would still be the same. You may not be one who is the preacher. You may not be one who serves in the house of the Lord. But the application would still be the same. Those who go to the house of the Lord are blessed. Those who go to the house of the Lord love it and desire it. Praising Him. Look, you are blessed to go to the house of the Lord. Not cursed. Not given a sentence of judgment. To go to the house of the Lord? Blessed! Some people think it's bad to go to church. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But some some people just don't understand it because they're not going to church with forgiven hearts. And there's no evidence of the joy of God or the fear of God or the love of God that they want to express in the worship of God as they sing joyfully. So it's a drudgery to them, but not so to those who have been saved. Not so to those who love God, who love His Word. They will want to go to church and they will consider it blessed. I know that for me, And I believe for many of you, the Lord's day is the day I look forward to more than any other. To be in the house of the Lord with the people of the Lord. It is not a drudgery. It is not a hardship. It is the best day of the week. And it is a blessing to come. Now, I could not leave out verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked or in the tents of wickedness. A day in the court of God, a day in the church of God, a day in the presence of God is better than, than a thousand outside. Now, what day would that be? The Lord's Day. You see, it's the day we look forward to. One day here is better than a thousand with the wicked and the sinful. One day in church, worshiping the living God, singing praises to Him, is better, not worse, than a thousand outside. This is where we want to be. Doing what we are doing today. Celebrating the resurrected Christ. Rejoicing in his word. Talking about the things of his kingdom. In Sunday school we dealt with questions and seeking to answer the questions that men may have from the Bible and the things of God. We love to feast on the word of God to hear the truth of God, to fellowship with one another and talk about the things of God. It's much better than being with the wicked at work. Now, I don't have the problem that some of you men have. I know that many of you go to work day by day and face the wickedness of the world. Some of you, it may not be at work. It may be even in your community or where you live, but you face sometimes the wickedness of the world and you come here and you sort of catch your breath. This is where you want to be. It's much better than being outside with the wicked. I love to be with the people of God I love to be in the church of God. It is my delight to be meeting with Him and to be with His people. This is what the redeemed will look forward to. It is the highlight of our week to be in the court of the Lord, the house of the Lord, the church of the Lord. Now here's the question. Having seen all of these things, Do these describe you? Do you desire to worship God in awe? Fear and trembling, rejoicing with trembling? Do you love to worship the God of the Bible as opposed to the things of the world? You want to worship God in awe and reverence, rejoicing and trembling. Do you desire to go to the courts of the Lord and sing praises to him from your heart? Is it better for you to be in the house of the Lord or would you rather be with the wicked? That is the evidence of being forgiven. If you want to be in the house of God and worship God in the way that He has prescribed, there's evidence that you're alive. there's evidence that you're forgiven. But if you would rather be with the world outside, if a thousand days outside is better than five minutes in the church, then there's no evidence that you have ever been saved. You will know them by their fruit. That's where we began. A church that desires to worship God in the way that God has described is a good tree. And it will bear good fruit. A church that disregards the Scripture and worships in the frivolity of the world and brings the world into their church with all its worldliness is a bad tree and they're not going to produce good fruit even if they produce many, many, many members. Bad fruit don't make. Good members. I'd rather have a bushel full of good members than a farmer's market full of bad members. Good churches produce good fruit. Do you want a good church? Do you want to worship in the way that God has prescribed? Or are you more interested in the world? These are the evidences that one has been saved. You really can tell. And I can tell by you. You're here. I'm grateful. But there's a lot of other churches like ours. A lot of other churches who strive to bring the truth and simplicity, the historic gospel to men. And there are a lot of men and women who go to them. But how often do we find those in so-called churches who say that they can't wait to escape from church. I can't wait to get out of here! Preacher can't possibly go on anymore! Look at the time! He can't possibly keep going on, can he? When is he going to stop? All they're interested in is getting out and they're not interested in getting in they're interested in getting back out to the world rather than staying with god and the people of god and i say to you that is real evidence of a changed heart when people say like what this man just said preach on keep preaching give us more of the word we hunger and thirst for the word and for the truth that's evidence of a changed heart that's evidence of forgiveness, Is that evident in you? I pray indeed that it is. The people of God love the things of God, love the Word of God, the worshiping of God. Those who are not forgiven must think that the people of God are contaminated. Let me get away from these people. I think they have leprosy. I can't wait to get out. No evidence of a changed heart. I believe that the redeemed who have been forgiven by Jesus will evidence a difference. They will be even as this psalmist. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. And even as they, he says in verse 12, O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you, in God. If I could say it, we've been trusting in God for a long time. We have not gone over to the dark side. We have refused to allow the world in. It isn't always easy that way, but it is right. And that's what we stand for. That's what we want. And praise God We'll be blessed as we trust in Him. Amen? Amen. We'll, bring more, this, we'll bring this into the New Testament next Lord's Day. But this morning I pray that those of you who are here love to worship God in the way that the Bible prescribes. And uh, we'll see a lot more of this, as I said, next Lord's Day. I can't wait. Let's pray.